This is They Create Worlds, episode 89, The Dawn of Computers and Gaming. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, apparently we went too fast in the last episode, and we went past the speed of light and had to go back in time to a time before video game, when there were just these computer things back in the mists of ancient time. Wait, there was a time before video games? Yes. It's a scary time. It's a sad time. It sometimes had cats. But yes, there was a time before computer games. Our younger listeners will probably go, what heresy is this? Jeff? We would go, what heresy is this? (laughs) Fine. Let us all collectively go, what heresy is this? (laughs) Right. The commercial video game industry dates really to 1971. That's when Computer Space came out, even though Computer Space wasn't wildly successful. That was the first commercial product. 1972, you get the Magnavox Odyssey, you get Pong. That's when the industry really starts taking off. As we've talked about in past episodes, you did have a fair number of people playing games for fun in the 1960s as well, whether that was people taking advantage of time-sharing mainframes at their school, or even earlier than that, people playing Space War at places like MIT. You had game communities in the 60s, even if there weren't that many of them. So we've tracked a lot of that early history, but today we're going to go ahead and go back to really the very beginning. This is episode 00, if you were trying to listen to us in something approaching chronological order, because what we're going to do today is actually go back to the 1950s and take a look at kind of the very beginning of computing and some of the very first games that were played on computers. These were not commercial products. These were not even widely played products like your Space Wars and your Hammurabis and your Lunar Landers, where they were spreading from lab to lab. Most of these programs were either experiments of some kind or demonstration programs that were put together for a specific event, played by a few dozen or maybe at most a couple hundred people and then dismantled again. So, yeah, I figure we've done a lot of looks at the beginnings of the industry, but not the very, very, very beginning. So this seemed as good a time as any to do that. Important safety note. Do not try to put our episodes in any kind of chronological order from a historical perspective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, there. I mean, obviously, you could choose the earliest thing we talk about in an episode and play the episode from there. But yes, <laughs> many of our episodes encompass humongous time periods. And so you would end up with one of those crazy conspiracy theorist web of strings and such going from episode to episode charted out that you've written on the walls of your house. And that would make you very crazy. So instead of doing that, let's just look at the 1950s. It was a fun time with fancy hats, coats, prancing around. I hear iceboxes were a thing. (laughs) 
Sure. So, uh, you know, the first games were the 1950s, but we'll actually go a little further back than that, uh, even into the 1940s and 1930s. I guess at, at the very beginning, I mean, this is this is zero, ground zero here. So what is a computer? Back before about 1930-something, computers existed, but they were not what we call computers today. A computer was actually a job title. A computer was a human being, and not a Dune-like Mentot who was just really, really good at math and could do fast calculations in their head. It was actually often considered a very menial task and a very basic task. All a computer was is a person that was doing basic arithmetic, basic math, in support of solving some kind of problem. Now, you see, a computer was not a mathematician. Computers were not creating formulas. Computers were not deciding what the best way to solve an equation was or what the best way to tackle a problem was. Mathematicians were doing that part of it. The computer was just the person that was being told, okay, you have these numbers, you need to add them together with these numbers and then divide by that number and write out the results and then write out the result of the next one and the next one. And they would do a whole series of these calculations and then the mathematicians would actually feed these calculations into whatever problem they were trying to solve. It was almost akin to a factory job. It took a little more skill than just pulling a lever or pressing a button on an assembly line, but it was very much the same kind of idea. And the profession actually did come out of the 18th century, the late 18th and early 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution was happening. So really, it's sort of a state of you have mathematicians who come up with these algorithms and equations that we want to use to solve a problem. And then the Mm -hmm. computer is the guy who goes, I'm doing the grunt work. I'm adding A plus B and just doing all the permutations, so on and so on and so on until we get whatever our result is. So say you write a computer program today that goes, I need to calculate how much food a district is making. The mathematician is you, in that case, writing that algorithm that does it. And the computer is just like your regular computer. It just sits there and just crunches those numbers and just spits out a result eventually following whatever predefined mathematician algorithm is dictated. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you said guys. Uh, interestingly, this is a job that also came to often be associated with women as well, particularly in the 20th century. You may recall the movie Hidden Figures, the movie about the, the NASA computers that helped uh, put a man on the moon. Because this was seen as akin to clerical work, similar to secretary's work or that kind of thing, it became, at least as the 20th century went on, something that was often done by women. One of those rare professions that was considered acceptable for a woman to do in the time before we had broad equality amongst the sexes. So they were very important in putting a man on the moon. They were very important in World War II as well. A lot of human computers were used in World War II on projects like the, uh, the Manhattan Project as well. So that's where the term computer comes from. It is a person who computes. Well, at some point, just as other tasks were being automated during the Industrial Revolution, some people started figuring out that in certain situations, 
computation is something that can be automated as well. And so you started getting the first computers uh, that were machine in the late 19th century. But these were not digital computers. These are not the computers we think about today. They're analog computers. I can't remember. We may have, in one of our episodes, talked briefly about the difference between analog and digital computers, or analog technology and digital technology. But just to go over that again, when you have a piece of digital technology, it is representing states entirely through binary Boolean logic and numbers and ones and zeros. And by running through a series of logical questions, yes or no, if, and, and not, nor, and running through these choices one at a time, a digital machine is able to create a decision tree in a series of calculations or steps that can mimic a real-world problem. An analog device actually has to have some physical component that is mimicking a real-world phenomenon. That's why it's called an analog computer, because what it's doing is analogous to something that is happening in the real world. When you have an analog computer that's doing calculations, let's say, that's doing differential equations, you actually have to have mechanical pieces within that device that are spinning around and keeping tally by actually moving gears and moving disks and moving other parts to keep track of mathematical problems as you are doing them. Or if you're using uh, mechanical advice to do something other than pure mathematics, like uh, calculating tides, which is what one of the first analog computers was used for, you actually have a a series of pulleys or gears or other mechanical parts that are simulating the progress of a tidal cycle with uh, actual parts rather than digital technology where you you can literally just run the numbers and by going through a series of logical steps you get a result without having to actually physically simulate what's going on. I think I did a at least half-decent job of explaining that, didn't I? <laughs> Pretty much. A better way that I always thought of a computer as far as a digital analog thing, with an analog computer, it is more or less fixed to whatever task it's doing. If I have it calculating something simple, like, say, the tithe, as you were saying, So the analog computer that you had to have all these different disks or whatever that are used to calculate that. And so if I was going to actually change how that analog computer works is I got to get in there and mech around with it. I got to change out gears, change out timing, make sure all of that stuff works so that as it's doing whatever calculations it's doing, it can still do it. It's very analogous to, say, a clock. If I have a clock that's just keeping track of hours and minutes and then I go oh, I want to track seconds. Then I got to add in new gears and stuff in order to do that. Oh, I want to track days. I got to add in a disk for days. I got to add in a gears to handle that. That inherently has a lot more maintenance, upkeep, and a lot more knowledge and a lot more prone error handling that needs to be taken into account in order to actually function properly. While a digital computer, all it is doing is adding. That's it. The computer that we are recording on now, and that you are potentially listening to, and so on and so forth, it is, by and large, at a fundamental level, adding. Mm -hmm. There is no subtraction. There is no division. There is no 
multiplication. There is no esoteric whatever. It is just adding. This may surprise you, but the thing is, is that it's adding really, really quickly. I want to deal with uh, subtraction. I'm adding negative numbers. Mm-hmm. I want to deal with multiplication. I just add something, whatever all multiplication is. It's just adding something to itself multiple times. Wee. Right. Division is sort of that in reverse. I forget how exactly that works as far as addition goes, but you get the point. And it is the the most complex of the four operations to get a computer to do. Not that any of it's complex for a modern computer, but addition, subtraction, that's like you said, what a computer does. Multiplication is close enough to addition that it's not too much of a stretch to get it there. Division, you have to make a computer do some special tricks, and early programs often did not divide as a result. It did much longer circuitous routes of getting to a, a division of a number. You keep adding that. You keep adding those capabilities on top of each other. And just by that process, you can then eventually get a computer because it's just adding so quickly that it can just do nearly anything. But the underlying hardware is effectively the same. Yeah, if I, I could probably run all the stuff that I'm doing now on an older computer. It would just be really, really slow. But eventually, over time, it would get there. (laughs) Because all it really is, is just adding. So the big advantage of that whole digital computer aspect there is it provides a way for me to change that algorithm, change the way that it's going about doing something without having to go in there and muck with gears and timing springs and have some sort of output wheel that shows something. I'm calculating a missile trajectory one day, and then I just change what it's calculating in order to have it calculate the census. I don't have to go in there in order to change out the disk that goes, okay, missile stuff, to the disk that says, oh, this is the disk we need to do to do census stuff. Right. Now, just to clarify, even though that that is the distinction of things, especially today, That analogy is not quite perfect because actually the early digital computers, their function was entirely dictated by their hardware. They would actually have plug boards with circuits plugged into different places, just like an old telephone switchboard. To change the operation of those computers, you actually did have to go in and change the hardware, but it wasn't switching out one gear and switching out another gear. It was taking one circuit out of plug board uh, slot one and then moving it over to plugboard slot two and then taking the one in slot five and moving it up to slot three, et cetera, et cetera. Rewiring pathways. That was actually a rewiring process that some of the very earliest computers required to, to do a different function. But right, but you're, you're talking about changing electrical pathways. You're not talking about, I have this gear here and this pulley here and I need a completely different type of gear to do this. And yeah, the, the clock analogy is a very good one. An old-fashioned pocket watch versus a modern, well, they're not really modern anymore, but for the purposes of my analogy, a modern digital watch. You know, if you open up that pocket watch, it has all of those gears, uh, you know, ticking around to keep time. And if you open up that digital watch, it's just got a bunch of wires and maybe an oscillating crystal in there. That's the difference between 
uh, analog and, and digital kind of in a nutshell is the one actually has to have, if you have a second hand, you actually need a gear that rotates 60 times within a minute to keep track of the seconds and, and so on and so forth. Whereas digital, it's just all through, you know, a series of electric pulses and all of that. So that's the first distinction, analog versus digital. Then the next distinction is electromechanical versus electronic, because you can have a digital computer that still has moving parts, that still has mechanical parts in it. So the next distinction is between an electromechanical computer and an electronic computer. An electromechanical computer, and we've talked about some of these distinctions before, especially with arcade games, an electromechanical computer relies on a series of mechanical parts to facilitate its digital addition. So you still, it's electric, you still have wires, you still have electricity racing through there, but as you're doing your operations and you're doing your logic gates and you're doing your split, and, you know, if you have this, you go this way, if you, go th if you have this, you go that way, a computer is basically just a giant choose-your-own-adventure book <laughs> in that sense. You had, in an electromechanical device, you had relays, which um, was a piece of metal that was magnetized with a magnetic coil. And um, as those relays opened and closed based on the, the electric pulses changing the magnetism, that's how the computer routed information through its circuitry to get to your result. There were a couple of games that were kind of made for analog electromechanical devices. And we'll talk about that briefly. There were really no games made for electromechanical digital computers. Electromechanical digital computers are pretty slow because they can only operate as fast as that relay. And that relay is a physical device. It can't approach the speed of light. It can't approach a really lightning fast processing time because it's a mechanical part moving back and forth, and those just have a natural limit on what they're able to accomplish. Electronic computers, and whenever we talk about this idea of electronics, uh, whether it's computers or anything else, what that means is that you are manipulating electrons. So you're working on the subatomic level. And back in the old days, back in the days of the computers that we're primarily talking about here, what that meant is you were passing electrons through a vacuum-sealed glass tube from an anode on one end to a cathode on the other end, so it's different polarities, so that attracts the electrons to move from one end to the other, and then there'd be something called a coil in there, usually, that served to amplify the signal because it passes the electron instead of the electron going straight across from one into the other it's passing it up and down up and down up and down really rapidly and reinforcing its own signal as it moves through that coil to the other side and you're actually turning off and on the flow of electrons to individual tubes and as you turn on a tube or turn off a tube again that binary state that one and zero on and off and and not that's how the computer processes information. And the good thing about that is you're moving at the speed of electrons, and electrons can move very fast. So the earliest electronic digital computers, those are kind of the two 
key components, that they're electronic rather than electromechanical, and they're digital rather than analog. The first electronic digital computers were created during World War II. Uh, There was actually one that was started in the late 1930s at the University of Iowa, but it was not finished. So we can kind of set it aside for our purposes here because we're not doing a history of every weird computer experiment. We're doing a video game podcast. The first two electronic digital computers that were completed were completed during World War II. And those were the Colossus in the United Kingdom, completed in 1944 for code-breaking activities, and the ENIAC computer, completed in 1945 in the United States, which was initially created to calculate artillery firing tables, and then was also later used after the war as part of the uh, Los Alamos Research Facility. Not for the bombs that were dropped on Japan, it didn't come into being in time for that, but some of the subsequent stuff. So that's when we're talking about, the when we talk about the birth of the electronic digital computer, it's really right there in 1944-1945. Now, no games appeared in the 1940s. There were a couple of reasons for that. First, there's like two, three, four computers in the entire world, so there's not time to be going and putting games on them when they're doing things like calculating how to detonate nuclear bombs. Very important. And artillery tables. That's right. And second of all, the the very first computers still had one very serious problem when it came to trying to run something like a game. They essentially had no memory. You thought the Atari had no memory. These computers had (laughs) epic no memory. Yes, they really actually did have no memory. There was not quite yet a concept of uh, what we call a stored program. It's exactly what it sounds like. What a stored program means is that the instructions or the program that you're feeding to the computer are being stored in memory with the computer. And that's why I was talking about uh, the, the wiring situation. That's why on the very earliest computers, the way the computer was wired determined what task it was doing. Because there was no way to store characters in memory. Basically, the computer could only do one thing. You would start the computer and it would do this one thing based on how you had pre-wired all the connections. It could not accept instructions as part of the process. Now, when I say can't, that's not quite accurate. After all, electromechanical computers accepted instructions on things like paper tape all the time. But the problem is the whole purpose of using an electronic computer as opposed to an electromechanical computer or even an analog computer is that it's faster because you're going at the speed that those electrons, those subatomic particles, can move. Well, that's a lot faster than a paper tape reader or a magnetic tape reader can read tape. So if you feed a program into an electronic computer using tape, you've just defeated the purpose of using the electronic computer because the electronic computer can move so much faster. Now, I know what you're going to say, but all those early computers use tape memory and whatnot. It's like, I know, but it's different because on those later computers, when you're uploading stuff with tape or whatnot, it's loading stuff into the computer's memory to do the calculations. Remember, what I'm saying here is that these computers have no memory. We're not saying little memory or 
small amounts of memory. We're saying there is no memory, only Zool. Yes. You have a case where if you looked at some of the stuff that we put in some earlier episodes relating to how computers work, this is akin to only having the BIOS being your computer. Mm -hmm. You can't get past or up that point. You just have the initial setup process that the computer runs through and goes, hello, what is here? Okay, and I did something, we're done. Right. As opposed to just doing the whole setup process of a modern computer where it sets everything up at the BIOS level and then hands that off to a supervisor program and then it just builds on top of itself. Right. Technically, it has a teeny, 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 tiny bit of memory because it has accumulators. So when it's running its arithmetic, it can very briefly store a few dozen numbers in its memory as it's running through the math. But if you're talking about putting a whole program into a computer, you need more than a few dozen ones and zeros, <laughs> a few dozen memory addresses in order to do a full program. So for all intents and purposes, they had no memory. So the last hurdle that really had to be overcome before you could really have actual real computer programs and games on computers is you had to have a way of storing that information. And when we say storing that information, we're not talking about hard drives. We're not talking about that kind of storage. We're talking about you need a place where stuff can be temporarily stored and recalled as it runs through things. The function that today is carried out by the random access memory in our computers, though uh, not all of the early memory solutions were random access. Some of them were serial. But we're basically talking about the computer's RAM for all intents and purposes. The first methods that were used to do this were actually both developed through radar research. In fact, radar research was very important to early computer research in, in several areas. But basically the problem that they had in radar during World War II is how do you stop your screen from becoming cluttered by everything in existence? Because radar is bouncing a pulse off of objects and it's recording where it discovered objects and it's relaying that back to you. So by default, if you send out a radar pulse in a space, it's going to bring back everything. It's going to bring back where all the trees are. It's going to bring back where all the houses are. It's going to bring back where all the really tall grass is. <laughs> Probably won't get the tall grass, but you know what I'm saying. The gnats. Right. And so it's bringing you back an overload of information, and it's showing you so many objects that you can't actually find what you're trying to track. So they had to come up with methods to eliminate objects that were not actually moving. Stationary objects, rocks, houses, trees, mountains, etc. And only track objects that are actually changing their position drastically from pulse to pulse. And so there were a couple of different technologies that were developed to do that. Both of them involved taking two readings and comparing the difference between the two readings and only relaying the information that changed in between the two readings, because that gets rid of your stationary objects. But both of these methods then, because they were essentially doing a kind of one-zero on-off scan, could also be used to create a form of readable memory by putting in a little more technology to actually read those pulses. Uh, so you had delay line memory, which was a serial memory, where you had your two pulses and you took your two pulses at the exact same moment. 
but you passed one of your pulses through Mercury. The other one, you didn't pass through Mercury. And because of that, there'd be a slight delay between the two reaching each other that differentiated the objects. And so you could use that as a kind of form of memory. That one was really no good for the computers, the early computers that had games on them. EDVAC, which was the successor to the ENIAC that we talked about, used Mercury Delay Line memory. The much better memory, because it was a random access memory, was what was called storage tube memory. It was a CRT, just like the CRTs that get used in our television. And the way it worked is, I mean, I'm not a technical person, so I'm, I'm oversimplifying probably a little, but basically the way it worked is by constantly firing dots at various parts of the CRT, firing electrons, which creates the dot. By constantly firing dots at various parts of the screen and keeping those areas refreshed by constantly rehitting them with the electron gun over and over again, you create a persistent, what's called a persistent charge well in that spot, which means that little dot is always on and is always sending out information. So for purposes of radar, I think the way that that basically works is as that information is being fed through to the CRT, if the same spot is quote-unquote on in every pulse, then that means that's a stationary place, whereas if you have a pulse that's moving over time, that's how you know that that's something new. But these charge wells can be created and erased based on whether you're constantly hitting the spot with the beam to refresh it, with the electron beam to refresh it, or are not. And then if you put just a little more equipment in that to read where those dots are, you have a form of memory because any place that's being refreshed where a charge will exist is in an on state or in a one state. And any place where you are not constantly refreshing is in a zero state or an off state. It creates a form of computer memory. That almost made sense, right? It does. Hand it over to our actual guy who went to school for some of this stuff. At least some of it, yes. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You have something that you're defining as an on state. I am shooting a beam, and wherever that hits on this screen, that's my on state. And the off state is where I'm not shooting. That's more or less how it goes. And if I have some sort of optical sensor on the other side, a human being that's sitting there going, Commander, Pixel A12 is on. Pixel A-12 is on. Launch missiles B-17. <laughs> you can see how that goes. Right. And so this, unlike the Mercury, the Mercury was serial memory because it was always based on sending a sequential series of pulses through the Mercury. This could be read at any time because you can have any portion of that CRT being read at any time. So this was a random access memory, and it was able to store about 1,024 characters per tube. So you would have to have a bunch of these tubes to get any level of decent memory. But it at least allowed for memory. And the other interesting thing about it is that it actually allowed for a primitive kind of display as well. Because they're CRT tubes, just like what's in your television. So they weren't set up to work like a television. You didn't have a situation where it could create a raster scan image and create 
a complete picture like on a television, that would have taken even more equipment because there's more than just the CRT that goes into that. It's also all the coils and everything else that creates the magnetic field fluctuations that causes the electron beam to move just so and draw the entire screen. But it does mean that there is a screen that is part of the tube, and you can look at that screen and see how the the memory is situated. So actually, some of the very first computer games that had some form of quote-unquote graphics created those graphics by manipulating one or two of the CRT storage tubes so that the on and off portions of the memory corresponded to create basic shapes on that screen. And so it allowed for kind of very primitive form of computer graphics as well, even though it was not so much graphics as just monitoring which bits of the memory were on and which bits of the memory were off and doing it in a pattern that just looked familiar to somebody. I imagine they took the same kind of concept and that's how they made the monitoring stations for the uh, radar operators who sat there and looked at the screen and goes, okay, Commander, we do have an incoming bogey that's undefined from this location. And then that's where you see the sort of the old style little blips that just showed up there. You had it on a big, huge console with a small little circular screen. Right. That Yeah, that, that's very possible. I don't know enough how the radar side of it worked, but, you know, it, it would stand to reason. So you've got computers that can do kind of basic calculations, basic this or that. Why would you have them play games? Today, I mean, the answer to that is uh, because it's fun. I like playing games, Alex. Why would you take my games away from me? I need this computer to play games. I need to be sane. Hint, kids, I'm not sane. That's right. But back in the day when you're talking about there only being a dozen computers in the world or whatever, you didn't have mass market computers. You didn't have lots of people having access to them, and you needed to carefully regulate computer time in order to uh maximize your return on investment on these multi-million dollars, and that's multi-million dollars in 1940s, 1950s money, uh, machines that you have. So you're not just going to sit around and have fun playing games on them. But there were several different purposes to creating games, even in this time period. And basically all of the games created in this early period, and I'm sure there are some exceptions, but for the most part, they fall into three basic categories. They were either created to further research into artificial intelligence because creating a computer that could think for itself and was considered a good idea. They hadn't thought of things like Cylons and HAL and all the sentient computers that are going to kill us, Skynet. At the time, they thought it was a good idea. Yeah, that's true. But they did make a movie about a big (laughs) supercomputer. I forget his name offhand. Oh, yeah, there were a few of those. But I'll throw it in the show notes. And that brings up another point. That brings us straight to purpose number two, which is because the idea of computers could be very scary to the general public, computers were sometimes programmed to play a game as a demonstration program at a public event, at a public expo to show people, see, this computer stuff isn't so scary. It will play tic-tac-toe with you if you ask it nicely. Would you like to play a game? (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. 
you beat me to the quote. <laughs> of course I would like to play a game, Alex. If you ask it really nicely, it might even play a game of nuclear war Thermo with you. nuclear war with the computer. That sounds safe. <laughs> that sounds not safe at all. And uh, the third category of games that were created were games that were meant to either instruct or to learn something by running through a scenario. And in this case, I'm mostly thinking of war games. Though, as we'll see, there were some that were also not in a military setting. So these are kind of the three categories of games that you saw in the 1950s. So the very first electronic digital computer game, and I need to make that distinction because there were a couple of contraptions even earlier that were analog, that were technically computers, but they were analog computers. So that meant the games were technically computer games. But it's not really computer games as we think of them. There was actually a device made all the way back in 1912 by a Spanish fellow that was called the chess player. And it could do the mate in two problem in chess, where you have a couple of pieces left and they just have a king left and figure out how to get checkmate on that king. And it actually had chess pieces that it could move around itself using magnets and other devices. And it was an analog computer, so it was actually making decisions. It was actually capable to make decisions on its own, but, I mean, that's not really what we think of as a computer game today. The first digital computer game was actually created by a group of cryptographers at Bletchley Park, the British cryptology organization during World War II that cracked the Enigma Code and some of the other high-level German military and diplomatic codes. Alan Turing, who is in a lot of ways considered the father of computer science because he was the first person to come up with the idea of, or at least the first person to publish on the idea of having a machine that could read symbols and not only output instructions based on those symbols, but actually read those symbols to acquire new instructions that it could then output as well. So it's, it's kind of the foundations of, of computer science. It's the foundations of computer programming, where you have that basic BIOS essentially within the computer, but then the computer can do so much more because you are able to give it commands that it understands that modifies its operation all through software. He came up with that concept of the universal Turing machine. It's even named after him in 1936. He was very interested in the idea of thinking machines. In fact, there's a very famous artificial intelligence test named after him, the Turing test, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I am. The Turing test is the challenge where we try to figure out, am I talking to a human or a computer? We actually still use AI that's actually based on a Turing test today for basic chatbots that you may interact with. Mm -hmm. There are some of these that are actually used in sort of therapy sessions, too, where they you sit down and you're talking to the computer and it just asks questions based off of what you tell it. So you have things sort of like, I'm feeling fine today. And the computer goes, well, what was good about your day? And then you go, blah, 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 about your day. And then it asks you a question. It tries to determine some sort of key word about that. And then continues on to try and elicit more information just to get you talking and continuing on. A lot of the time, this can eventually hit a brick wall where it's not a natural flow of conversation. But at least for the first three to four 
iterations of this, in a lot of cases, this works really, really well. Right. And what the Turing test is basically saying is, and nothing has passed the Turing test yet, what the Turing test is, is, um, you know, in one of those programs, can it actually fool a human being for more than X number of minutes or whatever into thinking that you're actually talking to another human being? Because right now, all the programs, no matter how sophisticated they are, break down eventually because they're only hunting for keywords and they're not really able to actually follow a conversation in a way a human would. But one of these days, someday, something will pass the Turing test. And that's considered to be kind of the threshold for a true self-thinking machine, a true artificial intelligence. We call many things that we use today AIs, including, of course, in computer gaming, but they're not really full artificial intelligences because they can only react to a relatively limited set of variables. They're incapable of actually passing this Turing test. During the war, during World War II, uh, Turing became very interested in the idea of intelligent machines and the idea of an intelligent machine being able to play a game well, because that would be a, a good way of kind of developing intelligence and assessing intelligence. And so he fiddled around idly with the idea of creating a chess playing program. He didn't actually create it during the war, but he thought about it a little bit. Another discipline that kind of intersects with this is game theory which was just starting to develop. It really only started developing in the 1920s. Game theory being essentially the idea that you can use mathematics to perfectly play a, a game, essentially, by going through a series of decision trees and figuring out what the best move is at any point in time along a decision tree. So Turing is the one that kind of linked together. Others were doing it at a similar time. It wasn't necessarily a huge breakthrough, but he kind of linked together this idea of game theory and decision trees with the idea of creating a computer program that basically just runs through a giant series of decision trees to play a game successfully. And he applied this to chess. And after the war, both he and one of his other colleagues there, Donald Mitchie, went back to kind of their own places in peacetime and both fiddled around with creating a decision tree for chess. And, you know, really quickly, basically, the way this works is that based on the concept of min-maxing, which is the idea that there is always in a situation where you have perfect knowledge of the other side, so there's no fog of war, there's no confusion. So in a game like chess, where you always know what the arrangement of the other players' pieces are and what moves those pieces are allowed to make. In a situation where you have complete knowledge of the choices available to the players, there is always a one move that is the absolute worst that maximizes your losses, and there's one move that is the best to minimize your losses, or maximize your success, minimize your success, however you want to call it. And that, that's the basic concept of min-maxing. Now it's that thing that all of those RPG players do when they're trying to figure out what the best combination of variables is to make the most powerful character they absolutely can. So min-maxing is very much an idea that spreads well throughout games. Uh, but here we're just talking about maximizing or minimizing your success based on a, a board position. 
in a game like chess, there really is one move that is always the best move to take in that situation. So if you start at the very end of the game, if there's a move that you can take at the very end of the game to achieve a checkmate, that is the very best move you can make in that situation because you win the game. Logically speaking, the best thing you can do before that final move is to get your pieces into a position where you're able to execute that final move. Makes sense. Right. Which means that you start at the end. You start at checkmate. And then you look at all the moves possible before that checkmate move and see which move gets you to that position. And then you go to the next level up and you see all the moves that can get you to that position and so on and so forth. And you play the entire game backwards to the start of the game. And then you know exactly what to do on the very first move to guarantee a win on the very last move. Now, chess is a big, complicated game. It doesn't look like that many pieces and it doesn't look like that many squares, but that is millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of potential outcomes to a chess game. That king can be anywhere at the end. Right. So computers today are actually fast enough to process a lot of that. That's why you see all these headline-making supercomputers that beat chess masters, because they can actually do that. Computers back in the 1940s, 1950s, even 1960s and 1970s did not have the processing power to run all of those variables in anything approaching a reasonable time frame. I mean, they could do it. Just like you said, you can take any computer and give it any problem and it'll give you to an answer to that problem when it's done running through all its processes. It might take you literally a million years. But it will do it. But... You will get the, the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything if you set that computer to working on it for a long enough period of time. Seven and a half million <laughs> years. I'm reminded of me running a video game on non-specified hardware. Alex may recall this epic feat. <laughs> yes. I had a copy of Diablo 1, which... Uh, <laughs> yes. Yay! I bought Diablo 1. This is awesome. It's from Blizzard. They made those awesome games. Yay! What computer do I have that runs this? A 386? That'll work, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so we install the game. It runs. And it goes step, 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 step. It was really, really slow. It could run on there, and it ha took a lot of time processing, and it could run Diablo, but it was probably about half the frame rate, maybe a quarter of the frame rate of the standard game. And when we eventually put it on a more modern computer, like 486, it worked a wee bit better. And, uh, you know, another, another famous example of this, and I, I forget which game company he was talking to now. But Steve Jobs, back when he owned Pixar, was touring a, a game company and looking at their most advanced game that they had running in, in the mid-90s. And, you know, was looking at it and was just thoroughly unimpressed because he's like, so what? I mean, this looks so graphically primitive compared to what my computer animators at Pixar are doing. And then the guy turned to him and is like, yes, but what we're running right here is running in real time. How long does it take your Pixar animators to render those computer graphics that you're talking about? And then he was kind of like, oh. 
<laughs> yeah. Calculations. Fun. Because it would take, uh, you know, back when they were making Toy Story, it would like it would literally take hours to render one second of that <laughs> computer footage. <laughs> so it was impractical for a computer to play a complete game of chess. So what they would do is they would have it look ahead just a couple of moves. And then the game would run through a series of what are generally called plausible move generators, which is basically saying, okay, I don't have complete knowledge of the board, but I know what's happening in these next couple of moves. I know that these types of pieces are usually much more valuable and much more important to not sacrifice. I know that these pieces are the pieces that are really the best to capture and remove from the board if I can remove these pieces. I know that if I just go after one of these pieces or sacrifice one of my good pieces to get rid of one of their weak pieces, that that's a really dumb move to make. So I'm going to guess based on the limited amount of chess knowledge that's been programmed within my memory, that it would be a much better idea to use my queen to take out his knight without any other pieces then being able to take out my queen on the next move than it would be to have my queen take out his pawn and then get taken out by his knight on the very next move. That makes sense. Yeah, so it it kind of uses a series of plausible move generators to kind of guess what would be the best thing to do. That's how the very first early chess programs worked, and that's how Turing and Mitchie's competing programs worked. Mitchie called his program Machiavelli, created in tandem with another guy named Sean Wiley. Turing created his program with the help of a friend of his named David Champaround, and so they called theirs Turochamp because it was a combination of their last names. Both of these programs were completed in 1948. These are the very first computer game-like programs that were ever written. But they weren't able to run at the time because they were actually too complex for the computers of the time. They took up too much memory to run. They had to wait for computers to get a little more sophisticated. So neither of these programs was actually ever run on a computer. Obviously, later chess programs were run on computers, but... These two were not, Turochamp and Machiavelli. So they're the first digital computer game programs written, but not the first ones to be run. The first game that was actually run on a computer was actually not a computer program, but was actually a custom-built digital computer that was wired in such a way as to specifically play a single game. So it was not reprogrammable. It was not a general-purpose computer. It was a specific computer. And it was created as a demonstration. I talked about how that was kind of the second piece of things. It was created as a demonstration computer in 1950 by a Canadian named Joseph Cates. Cates was an Austrian, an Austrian Jew, so he fled to Canada to escape persecution in Nazi Germany, which, of course, annexed Austria in 1938 and ended up studying electronics and becoming a radar guy during the war. So after the war, he worked for a company called Rogers Majestic, Canadian concern. It still exists today. I mean, it's not the exact same company, but it grew and merged and conglomerized, and uh, there's a Rogers communication today, and this Rogers Majestic electronics company is part of what eventually became Rogers Communication. But working for Rogers, he invented a new kind of vacuum tube called an Atatron. It was able to operate faster 
than current tubes on the market. But they were unable to start manufacturing it right away because they had a devil of a time patenting it in the United States, proving that it was a unique and new invention that was subject to protection. So by the time they actually got it patented, it was useless uh, because they didn't get it patented until 1956, and by then transistors were replacing vacuum tubes. But in 1950, when they were still trying to get it patented, they decided that they would like to demonstrate the Adatron and show how much faster it was. And so Cates decided that in order to do this, that he would create a game-playing computer that would play tic-tac-toe. So he called it Birdie the Brain, and it was a single-purpose, custom-built computer that just played tic-tac-toe. It didn't have a CRT display or even a readout kind of display. All it had were light bulbs. It was a light bulb display. So you had the tic-tac-toe board, X's and O's, and then you had a glass and... The X's and O's were on like pieces of glass, and then you had a light bulb behind each piece of glass, and when you pressed a button on the control panel that corresponded to a space on the tic-tac-toe board, that X or O, there'd be a light behind it that lit up, and that would lit up that, light up that space, and then the computer would make its move, and when it made its move, it lit up the appropriate space. So, no electronic graphics, but it was electronic logic circuits. So they displayed this at a Canadian exhibition in 1950. And that's the, the first time that anyone played a computer game publicly. And it's the first time that any kind of computer game had been created, even though this was a computer game entirely in hardware, not in software. So it was exhibited at the exhibition for a few weeks. Then the exhibition was over, and so it was dismantled. I mean, you're, you're not going to commercialize any of this stuff. The second known computer game ever made was similar. It was the exact same idea. In 1951, the British company, Ferranti, uh, which was a defense contractor and an electronics company that introduced the first commercial computer available in Britain, the Ferranti Mark I, they wanted to exhibit at a special exhibition that was held in 1951 called the Festival of Britain. Basically. Britain was still in pretty bad shape at the beginning of the 1950s. World War II really, really threw them for a loop. The country was broke and falling apart. They were having trouble building housing to replace that destroyed during the Blitz. Uh, they were dismantling the British Empire. They were still rationing, even in the early 1950s, as they were trying to get back to peacetime levels of production of even foodstuffs. The British government decided that they would have a what they called a Festival of Britain, which lasted for several months in 1951. It would serve as a showcase for those British technologies and inventions, etc., that were going to lead to a better tomorrow. It's like, I know your lives still suck right now because we're still recovering from the war, but look at all the advances we've made and look what's going to come into your lives. So Ferranti wanted to exhibit something at this show, but they weren't able for whatever reason, and I don't know the exact reason, but the Ferranti Mark I, their first general purpose computer, they weren't able to get one of those ready to go, like for the show. They couldn't demonstrate one of their actual commercial computers. One of their employees, John Bennett, came up with the idea of custom building a computer that could play the game of NIM. NIM being the the old matchstick game where you put a bunch of sticks or some other object all in a row or in a jumble, it doesn't matter, 
in a pile, however you want to do it, in front of you and another person. And each person is allowed to take a certain number of objects per turn. It varies depending on who you're playing with. Sometimes you can take up to three. Some people may play it with different variants. But the idea is the person who takes the last object wins. So you're trying to calculate how many objects you should take in each turn to make sure that you're the winner, that you get to take the last stick or whatever else you're using. That and who gets to go first. Exactly. Again, like tic-tac-toe, you know, you'll notice none of these demonstration computers are chess because chess is an incredibly complicated game. Both NIM and tic-tac-toe have a very small number of states, very small number of board states, and a very small number of moves that you can make per board state. I mean, tic-tac-toe only has one. You choose a spot to put your mark, your X or your O. Mm -hmm. NIM only has three moves, you know, take one, two, or three sticks. So it's a very small number of moves. It's a very small number of board states. And so that's a little more manageable for the computers of this time. I mean, Birdie the Brain was an unbeatable computer. Now, he put in various difficulty levels so that little kids that played it could have a chance to beat the machine. You know, he built in deliberate fuzzy logic, essentially, within the computer so that it would sometimes screw up. But when he turned it on full, I mean, it played an unbeatable game of tic-tac-toe because that's not really a complicated game, tic-tac-toe, to figure out the board state and what your best place is to put your mark. Uh, and when I say unbeatable, I mean, you know, either win or draw, you know, and would never lose. So NIM is a similar kind of game. So John Bennett says, let's build a custom computer that plays NIM. So it's the same thing. It, it uses a light bulb display again. It just has little individual tiny bulbs. It's not showing shapes like X's or O's. And each one corresponds to a stick. And again, you have a control panel in front of it where each button on the control panel corresponds to one of those little lights. You know, you tell it how many sticks you're taking by pressing those buttons, and then the computer does its thinking, and then, you know, you play the game. And again, theoretically, the computer in this case should be pretty unbeatable because it's not that complex a game. They displayed this at the Festival of Britain for several months, and then it also displayed it in Germany at an industrial show for several weeks. So Nimrod was the first game, uh, that was the name of the computer, Nimrod, was the first game that was played by probably hundreds, if not even a couple of thousand people. Uh, and this was in 1951. But again, it's a custom-built computer. We're not creating games in software yet. We're creating them completely out of hardware. So it's, it's not quite analogous to what we think of as video games today, though obviously some of the first dedicated consoles and arcade games were entirely hardware as well. So that's fair. Right. The first games that were created in software came in 1952. Can't be entirely sure which one came first, because I know the month that one was completed, but I don't know the month the other was completed. It's possible that one or the other came first. The one that I think probably came first and was definitely started first was a drafts game created by a guy named Christopher Strachey, or Strachey. I'm not exactly sure how he pronounces it. Probably Strachey. Now, drafts, our British listeners knew what I was talking about right away when I said that. Our American listeners are like, what is drafts? And the answer is checkers. That's just a British name for checkers. He created this on that Ferranti Mark I that I was talking about, this first uh, commercial computer in Britain. This drafts program, or this checkers program, did two things that were very interesting. 
fact, it was the first computer game that had an actual electronic display rather than these lights that were used in Birdie and Nimrod. The way it accomplished this is I talked about those CRT storage tubes and how you could manipulate them so it looked like a shape. So he used two of the tubes to make an approximation of a checkers board. And he used X's and O's like in tic-tac-toe to differentiate the two sides. You can't make them all circular because then you wouldn't be able to tell the two sides apart. And so he approximated a chessboard by having these dots manipulated and then approximated pieces on top of each of these. And he used two CRTs because one showed the current state of the board and one allowed you to preview your moves. When you told it, move a piece here, before confirming your move, you could see a preview of what the board would look like in the new state using the other tube. That's helpful. Yeah, exactly. So it was the first computer game with an electronic display. So that's, you know, that's pretty cool for 1952, which is when he finished it, about June or July 1952. The other game that was created that year was created by a guy named A.S. Douglas, who was working on another British computer called the EDSAC computer. He created a tic-tac-toe game, like Birdie the Brain, except he did the same thing that Strachey did. Uh, it was software, first of all, not hardware like Birdie, but then he did the same thing that Strachey did and manipulated the memory of the computer to show the board state. So it had X's and O's and the crosshatch and all of that kind of stuff. That was also in 1952, though it wasn't published until 1954. Strachey's program was definitely publicized first. It's possible Douglas made his first if he made it in, like, January through May of 52. Uh, but even if he made it first, he didn't publicize it until his thesis in 1954. It's pretty much an academic exercise. It's really not important which one came first. The important thing is 1952, you had two programs that were executed in software and showed you a primitive form of computer graphics. So that's cool. Definitely. The other kind of really interesting game in the 1950s, so you, you had a lot of chess stuff get developed, and you had some checker stuff get developed. We won't go into all of those variations. Uh, the other interesting thing that happened in the 1950s was the creation of the first real-time computer game. And we've talked about real-time before, and we've talked about the whirlwind before, because we talked about that in the context of, like, Space War and some of the other computer games. The idea of having a computer give you the illusion of real-time operation. So stuff is happening smoothly in what looks to you like real-time. It's actually slight delay, but our eyes can't process the delay, and our brains can't process the delay. So it looks like real-time. We talked about Whirlwind before, so we won't talk about that again. That was the first real-time computer. But there was another real-time computer at the University of Michigan. It wasn't quite as fast as Whirlwind, but it was still fast enough that it gave the illusion of real-time. Uh, and that was a computer called MidSAC that was developed in the mid-1950s. It was developed to be a kind of command and control system. One of the main things they thought it might be used for is air traffic control. So tracking all of the planes and where they are in real time so that you can give them commands. MidSAC never was fast enough to actually be a control system, so eventually the computer was shut down without ever having a commercial version appear, unlike Whirlwind that led to the SAGE system for the U.S. government. But they had hoped that it could be kind of an object tracking computer. 
1954, in June, there was going to be a visit by the local chapter, by the Detroit chapter, Michigan, nearby, of the Association of Computer Machinery was going to come and look at the computers that Michigan had at its Willow Run research facility, which is where MidSAC was. So, again, they wanted to kind of hold the interest of the people that were going to be looking at the computer. And so they thought, well, a computer is just not a very fun thing to watch just compute, especially at this time. All it is is blinking lights, whirring tape. There's nothing fun to see. That's a big part of why demonstrations often tended to be games, because it gave you something engaging to either watch or participate in while you're seeing this computer, seeing the computer do its thing and be like, oh, computers aren't that bad. They're very helpful. They can do stuff for us. They're your friends. That's right. So, so you use them to play a game. So they decided that they would create a game. And since the computer was set up to track multiple objects, they decided that a perfect game to demonstrate that would be the game of pool. Because you've got all of those balls, those 16 balls, and you hit them, you know, you break them with the cue ball at the beginning and all the balls fly around everywhere and then you take aim for certain balls and you know maybe three or four of them bounce around the table each time you take a shot in pool it was a program that could be used to show hey look at how this computer is updating the position of all of these objects in real time isn't that amazing different approach to the guys that were doing like ai research with checkers and tic-tac-toe and nim and chess because in those cases, they were trying to make a computer that could think for itself. They weren't trying to demonstrate a real-time graphical process. So a cerebral game where it doesn't matter if the computer needs to take a couple of minutes to think about its move is the perfect kind of game to try to demonstrate or produce artificial intelligence. So you do chess or checkers or tic-tac-toe. Demonstrating tracking of objects, you do something like pool. A couple of engineers, uh, Ted Lewis and William Brown, created a pool game on this mid-sack computer. And they had a CRT that it was hooked up to. So they were able to sort of create the draft graphics. The CRT monitor that they had, I think, was not much more sophisticated than, a, than an oscilloscope. So you couldn't really do elaborate graphics on it. But what you could do is you could use a sine wave generator to generate circles on the screen. So you can use that sine wave generator to, to create those 16 balls, or 17, counting the, the cue ball. And then you just need a little line to represent the stick. They couldn't actually do the table. That would have been too complex for this primitive thing. So they calculated the position of the holes. So if a ball went in a hole into a pocket, the ball did disappear from the screen, but the table itself and the pockets themselves were not drawn electronically. They actually had to take a grease pencil and draw the sides of the table and the pockets in the proper coordinates on the, on the CRT using a grease pencil. So really, this is just a proto version of the Magnavox Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. Where it can generate some spots, but can't generate everything you need. So we need to put a nice graphic overlay for billiards right on the screen. It'll handle the stick and the bouncing balls. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, you had a couple of controls to rotate the cue stick and you had a button to press to actually shoot. And 
uh, you know, it would calculate all the angles, all the trajectories as balls bounced off of each other. It would calculate the physics of that. It worked in real time. Now, the brake, the computer was not quite powerful enough, so the brake happened in slow motion because the brake is the one time where every object is moving at once. But after that brake, when there were only one, two, four balls in motion at a time, then it was able to do it in real time. I mean, it seemed seamless. And so it was an effective demonstration of that capability. All you could do was knock all of the balls in. You really couldn't play a game of billiards because you couldn't differentiate the balls. Again, you couldn't like put a little number one, two, three, four, five, six, etc. on the balls because it didn't have that kind of graphical capability. The cue ball was able to be rendered differently because they could adjust the brightness of the individual balls. So they made the cue ball brighter than all of the other balls. So you knew which one it was, but they couldn't do that with all the other balls. I mean, theoretically, you could have made all 16 balls a different level of brightness, but the human eye would have never been able to pick that out. <laughs> Various shades of white. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so that was Midsack Pool. That's a game that not many people realize exists, and more and more people are realizing it now. Actually, thanks to my research, it's on Wikipedia now. I can take credit for that. Now, Keith Smith, no relation to me, but who runs the All in Color for a Quarter arcade blog. He's the one that first noticed that Midsack Pool was a thing that existed. So he gets the credit for discovery. He found it in old Magnavox patent lawsuit stuff because, of course, for the Magnavox patent cases, people were looking for every example of prior art in video games they could. So some lawyer or some researcher unearthed this game. So he was the first one to discover it and notice it in modern times. I was the first one to write about it on my blog. And because I wrote about it on my blog, it's now made its way to Wikipedia. So I've played a role, actually. I can take credit for playing a role in spreading knowledge of this game. But a lot of people still don't realize that it existed. And they'll say that the, the first real-time game was something else a little later down the line. But this is, as far as we know right now, we could always discover another new game sometime. As far as we know right now, that is the first graphical computer game with real-time update of the graphics is that Midsack Pool game. And it was only played by no more than about 25 people that came to this one meeting, and then it was <laughs> torn apart. So it didn't influence anyone or anything. All the games we're talking about here are really more historical footnotes than anything else, but it's still interesting to see some of the stuff that was being done in this time period. So you have these AI programs, you have these demonstration programs. The other thing that you have going on in this period is war games. You do have uh, government think tanks like the RAND Corporation and the Organization for Research Operations, ORO, run by the Army, that are creating programs that can run through military simulations and calculate how much damage each side is doing to each other, how many troops they're losing, how effective attacks are, that kind of thing. Again, we won't go into the specifics on them. It's more to say that these programs existed. They were very primitive compared to what we would think of today, but they were out there kind of in the mid-1950s is when a lot of these really started developing. The interesting thing, though, is that there's a direct line from these. We'll connect this dot, uh, these dots straight to the time-sharing games like Hammurabi that we talked about in our time-sharing episode. Because the military started doing these operational research games where you're given a scenario and you're given the ability to deploy your forces as you see fit, and then the computer interprets the results of what happens based on the variables that have been programmed into it. 
more of an input a problem and get a solution kind of thing rather than some kind of real-time kind of thing. The business world became impressed by what these think tanks were doing, because these think tanks, they publish papers. I mean, people are aware of what's going on. The specifics of how they work may be classified, but people are aware that people are doing this kind of research with computers. The business world got interested in that and were thinking, well, if you can have a computer program that goes through a series of variables in a military conflict or in a military logistics system and figures out how it's all going to turn out, you could do the same thing with determining how to market a product. And so in the late 1950s, you got some business simulations starting to get created that basically modeled running a company and making decisions on how to market a product against competing products. The first couple of these were created by management organizations, and then these games entered the schools. There's a very famous one called the Carnegie Tech Management Game in particular that is still used by Carnegie Tech today. It's obviously been upgraded and modified and all of this over time, but they started using it in 1958, and they still use it at uh, Carnegie Mellon, which is the successor to Carnegie Tech, at Carnegie Mellon today. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, you where three teams of people compete against each other running a detergent company, and they make decisions on prices and marketing spends and all of this, a bunch of different variables. They're asked to make a bunch of decisions, and then the computer takes those decisions that everyone's made and runs it against whatever model is within the computer, and then spits out, okay, this is where you are in this quarter. What do you want to do next quarter? And, uh, you know, runs through this entire simulation of running these detergent companies. Yeah, and it seems to be that the algorithms, I imagine, as far as economics go, don't really change too much. Right, right. And it, it can be used really, really well to be a educational tool for both economic majors who are going, okay, I need to understand how does this stuff really apply in the real world? And then you have computer science people going, oh, how is this actually coded? You have marketing people who go, oh, if I make this more attractive versus that, what's my result? Exactly. You know, that still gets used today. And it wasn't the only one. There were hundreds, literally hundreds of these games being created in the late 50s and early 1960s. It was seeing these educational games in universities that caused the guy in charge of the Westchester Boches or BOSIS, that we talked about in regards to Hammurabi in our time-sharing episode, to think, hey, they're using computers to aid in instruction in colleges. Why don't we try to do something similar in high schools? There's a direct link there between these management games that, that spun out of these military simulation games and then the creation of Hammurabi, which was one of the first widespread time-sharing computer games in the 60s. So even though individual products don't really influence anything, it does have an effect. It does matter. The fact that these artificial intelligence exercises and military simulations were being run in the 1950s had some direct input on how people started using games in the 1960s. You know, even Space War. Space War, in a way, was a demo program to show how well the PDP-1 could work and what kind of amazing things you could do on the PDP-1. And this idea of using demos went all the way back to the 50s in games like Midsack Pool or like the Bouncing Ball program on the Whirlwind, which was not a game, but again was a demo program. This idea that you create a program or create a game to demonstrate how a computer works 
gets right to MIT and gets right to the heart of why Space War was made. So even though there isn't any individual product that you can say, oh, that product influenced this, that product influenced that, what you can say is the concept of using a computer to do this, the concept of using a computer to do that in the 1950s led directly to the first computer games that people shared and enjoyed and played semi-regularly in the 1960s. I would like to wrap up by giving special attention to one final game just because it comes up so much in video game history books. And that's the game that has retroactively been called. It wasn't called this when it was being displayed, but it's what we call it now, called Tennis for Two which was created in 1958 at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York. Tennis for Two occupied a special place for a long time, mostly because I think people thought that it was the first real-time computer game with an electronic display. We know now that it wasn't, because we know about Midsack Pool, which existed four years earlier. But I think it took a special place in people's minds both because of that and because it was a tennis game. And, you know, you had the Magnavox Odyssey table tennis game and you had Pong as the very early kind of beginning of the commercial industry. And it's like, oh, look, somebody did a tennis game in 1958, like years and years before that, over a decade before that. Now, there's no connection between the two. And in fact, they don't play alike. They don't look alike. So it's not like Ralph Baer took a visit to Brookhaven one day and saw that and was like, I'll make a table tennis game on my Odyssey. I mean, you know, there's not a direct connection there. So I think the importance of the game has been inflated a bit over time just because of that. But it's still an interesting game because it kind of is the first time that somebody went and said, you know, I'm going to use a computer to entertain somebody. The AI experiments were not really complete games. It was really just, I'm creating an AI that can play a game. That's different than really creating a game. I mean, Chess Master, to pick the, the popular chess program on microcomputers in like the late 80s and early 90s, Chess Master had a chess AI that you played against, but it also had a title screen and it had menus to choose game options and it had the graphics of a chessboard. You know, it had all of the trappings of a game complete within itself. The 1950s chess programs were just a chess AI. You played a game of chess with it, but it was basically like replacing the other human with a, with a computer opponent. It wasn't like a complete, fully realized concept of a game, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, the way we sort of define a game these days is just, I have the trappings of a game, I have graphics, I have sound, I have interactivity. A scoring system of some kind. Something like that. While it seems with a lot of these game AI stuff that play popular board games of the era, these AIs, all they do is they just start up and they go, is there a board? Yes. Okay, is it my turn? Yes. Analyze move, wait for turn. That's it. Right. You can technically call it playing a game, but as far as we would think of it as, you don't see a big screen that comes up that says, play the computer AI, and he has this mischievous looking computer rubbing its hands and looking at you evilly, and you have to defeat it in <laughs> checkers in order to get a new life. No. Exactly. So, you know, in that sense, they're not really entertainment products. 
It's just research. Obviously, the military simulations or the business simulations, those aren't made for entertainment. Those are made to teach you how to do something or to determine what the best operation to do in a particular circumstance is. That's not entertainment either. The demo programs are made to be entertaining, but they have an ulterior motive. They're trying to introduce you to computers or teach you about computers. In fact, Nimrod, there was a programmer's manual that you could buy, a program manual that you could buy for a cheap price telling you about the computer, kind of a brochure. And it went to pains to say, it may look like a waste of time to create a computer that plays Nimrod, but this, or that plays Nim, but it really shows you how a computer can model all sorts of complex things like world economies. (laughs) They specifically mentioned world economies. So it's like, yes, we're creating something that we hope will entertain you. But it's because we're trying to show you that a computer can do interesting things and can be used to better humanity. It's not about entertainment for entertainment's sake. Super Mario Brothers doesn't exist to teach you about the proper disposal of dangerous turtles. It's there to just be a fun time waster. No ulterior motive, no attempt to educate or enlighten or anything. It's just let's let's have fun. I thought it was supposed to be a sophisticated jump simulator. Don't try to jump like Mario. You're a human. You can't change your path in midair. Yes, I can. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> so the demo programs were games. I mean, it's a step further along from your AI research. Because they are, in that sense, games. But they're games with an ulterior motive. The thing that's interesting about Tennis for Two is it was created just to have fun. And that's really what its only purpose was. It was created by a physicist named Willie Higginbotham. Real name. He uh, was an expert on displays and an expert on radar and an expert on electronic circuits. And so he was actually part of the Manhattan Project, but he wasn't figuring out how to do the chain reactions. He was figuring out how to create the timing circuits that would allow all of those fancy physics computations that everyone else was making about critical mass go off at the right times. You know, he was more focused on the electronic side of it, not the nuclear side of it. He became a very big proponent of halting nuclear proliferation after the war. A lot of the scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project were kind of horrified by what they had created when it was all said and done. So he fought the spread of nuclear proliferation, and he also endeavored to discover uh, peaceful, nonviolent uses for nuclear reactions and nuclear energy. Uh, And in fact, the Brookhaven National Laboratory was a government laboratory, but it was specifically dedicated to peaceful uses of nuclear energy. It was not a weapons research facility. We had other places for that. So every year, Brookhaven held a visitor's day. Well, actually, they held three. They would hold one for, like, high school students, one for college students, and one for the general public. Three open houses kind of on three successive weekends in the fall where they would bus people around the different buildings, show them the reactors and the accelerators and all of these equipments. Then they'd end up in the gym and they'd have static displays up saying, you know, this is the research this department does, this is the research that department does, and isn't this all so exciting? It is. Well, you know, a lot of it's more exciting in practice than it is in theory when you're just staring at static displays or complicated pieces of equipment that you have no idea how they work and someone's just talking at you. Higginbotham wanted to just make the visitors' days more exciting, more interesting, more engaging. They had an analog computer. 
This was a digital computer, but it was an analog digital computer. You can have analog digital computers. The analog versus digital is one part of it, and the electronic and electromechanical part, or pure mechanical part, is, is another part of it. Those are two different parts of it. So they had an analog computer there called the Donor 30, or the Donner 30, I guess it's probably pronounced. In the programming manual for this computer, they gave a sample program or a sample use for this computer, which was calculating the trajectory of an object. And so there was kind of an already built-in program that created like a little dot that was meant to represent, say, a missile, and then created a, a trail behind the dot, and you could change angle and velocity and calculate what the trajectory of that dot would be by changing variables. You know, it's just a way of doing research, seeing how your calculations would affect the movement of this object in real time if you hooked it up to an oscilloscope. So he was like, well, you know, that sounds a lot like tennis because that dot can be a ball and then the trajectory, the arc of the ball over the net. So it's like, you know, I could take this program and make just a few modifications to it because the program in the manual is not a tennis program. It's just the trajectory part of it. I can take this and turn it into a tennis program. I can set parameters for how the trajectory works, limits on how the trajectory works. I can create a net object and program in the idea that if the ball hits the net, it doesn't continue on its path. I can make these slight changes, and I've got a tennis game. And I think this would be something fun for the people that come to the Visitor's Day to be able to do, is just play a computer uh, play a computer game. I mean, if you want to get technical, in a sense, it was a game with an ulterior motive, because it was saying, hey, look, we've got this computer, and look what it can do. But it really wasn't, because it wasn't trying to say... They weren't trying to convince people about the utility of computers or even the utility of computers in their own work. It was really just, well, we've got this neat piece of equipment. Wouldn't it be fun if we played on it for a few minutes? So in a way, it was the first known game, computer game, that was created for entertainment first and for ulterior motives second. Now, that's a very fine line kind of distinction, and it may, at the end of the day, be a meaningless distinction. It's a way to kind of justify the continued focus on Tennis for Two in an era where we've discovered that the actual mechanics that it simulated are, are really not as, as unique as we thought before the discovery of some other games. So it's a side view of a net. Pong and Odyssey Table Tennis are, are essentially overhead views. They're bird's eye views of the action. So when I say that Tennis for Two is not in any way an analog or a predecessor to those games. I mean, I mean that. It's really not. You have a side view of a court. So you have a line representing the court, just a a horizontal line, and you have a short vertical line representing the net. Uh, Then you have the arc that represents the balls. You have two controls. You have a control to choose the angle of your return, and then you have a button to press at the moment you want to make your return. Basically, you're just you're choosing when in the arc of that ball you want to change the arc of the ball by pressing your button to, to return the ball. So it's a very primitive kind of simulation of tennis, but it's in real time. The action never stops. The ball's falling back and forth as you choose your angle and press your button. Uh, you know, you're, you're affecting a change on that trajectory. And so you can play a primitive game of tennis. Obviously, there's nothing else on the screen or nothing else in the game. You have to keep score yourself. You have to decide when the game's going to end yourself. But you have a tennis game on an oscilloscope. Uh, It was very popular. 
you know, hundreds of people played it. There were long lines of people that were waiting to try it out. It was popular enough that he brought it back the next year and even had some fun with it in 1959 by having different gravity effects. In addition to the regular from the year before, he had one that simulated gravity on the moon and gravity on Jupiter. So kind of loopier physics to have some fun with that. Uh, But then after that, it was dismantled, just like all of these other programs were dismantled because it was a demonstration. It served its purpose. And uh, this was never going to be a commercial product. We need to use this computer for something else now. That was the logic in the 50s. It was only in the 1960s when A, computers started to proliferate more, and B, you had access to computers by people like, say, college students that weren't necessarily laser-focused on research and laser-focused on serious uses for things, that you finally get programs like Space War or Lunar Lander that go from, hey, we're occasionally demonstrating a computer, to, hey, let's just create a game and have fun with it. So Tennis for Two is kind of a bridge in that, but again, there's there's no influence there, because the guys that did Space War never saw Tennis for Two. David All did see Tennis for Two, and we talked about David All and how he helped in the spread of early games with his educational newsletter and his 101 basic computer games and his creative computing magazine. He did actually play Tennis for Two in the late 50s. His high school was one of the schools that went and saw that display. So at most, you could say Tennis for Two may have helped inspire some of All's leaning towards computer games, but it didn't influence any any particular game. So there you have it. That's That's kind of a look. That's not everything that was made in the 50s, but that's kind of a broad overview of the classes of games that were created in the 50s and some of the first programs to to do this and that, whether it's be self-learning or have a display or operate in real time or et cetera, et cetera. Alrighty. I guess since we've covered all the computers in the before time, what do we delve into next time? Well, I think it's time we look at another pinball company. Pinball? Yeah. Now, not just pinball, but video games too, but we looked at one pinball company that was also heavily involved in video games, which was Williams. We did a big old look at that, and uh, I think it's time that maybe we did another one, and this time I think we should take a look at Bally Manufacturing, a very important company in both pinball and video games. So uh, we'll go back to the before time again. We'll chart its long uh, history before video games. Uh, And then take a look at some of its role in the Golden Age, uh, when, of course, its Midway subsidiary was responsible for bringing some of the most important games uh, of the era to the uh, United States, like Space Invaders and Pac-Man. Valley Manufacturing. We will delve into that next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through DRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.